Psalm 34. Let me pray for us and then we will study Psalm 34. Heavenly Father, we do thank you this morning for this church and uh, for a beautiful morning and the opportunity to gather with your saints. And we, we just uh, rejoice in you and um, all that you've done on our behalf, redemptively uh, in our temporal lives as you provide everything that we need. May we be like David in this psalm as he just gives thanks to you and not only gives thanks to you individually, but uh, actually ask that other people gather around him to exalt your name together. And so I pray that we would be those kinds of people that exalt your name together and don't merely thank you individually, but want to share that joy with others in the body. And I just pray that you bless our study time now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Everybody have a sheet? I should probably have one so I know exactly where I'm taking you. Thank you. I have my own notes, but it's helpful to have these outlines in front of me. Psalm 34. I'd like to read through the whole psalm together, if you don't mind. Uh, I would like you to read it if, if you're ready this morning. You don't have to. But um, anybody willing to read verses 1 through 7? Is it too early? It's th- Thursday nights, it's okay to have you read, but Sunday mornings, that's asking a bit much. Is that true? Okay, so James will be 1 through 7. Who would read 8 through um, 18? Thomas? And then, uh, Nathan, will you do 19 through 22? Yeah. All right, go ahead, guys. Psalm 34? Yeah. Psalm David, when he feigned madness before Abimelech, who drove him away, and he departed. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant. Their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves his days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. The righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. He protects all his bones, not one of them will be broken. Evil will slay the wicked, the foes of the righteous will be condemned. The Lord will rescue his servants. No one who takes refuge in him will be condemned. All right, thank you for reading that, gentlemen. This is a psalm of praise. It's a psalm of confidence. It's a psalm of uh, joy after being delivered from his enemies, from David's enemies. We're going to look at the context that the introduction gives us or the superscript gives us, superscription gives us. Um, There's a section in... David's life where he has to uh, escape from Abimelech. Actually, we'll talk about it in a minute. Abimelech is probably another name for the king of Achish, but we'll we'll talk about that in a moment. But this is a a psalm of deliverance, a psalm of praise, a psalm of joy. And mixed in with it is some, what some refer to as wisdom, where you see here in verse 11 through 14, he is instructing his listeners or his readers in the way that the Proverbs instruct people in godly living. And so they 
scholars use, see this, interpreters see this as a, him, him using the kind of the wisdom tradition, as it were, in Israel and instructing the people not only to praise the Lord, but in godly living. Um, and then he, he's going to make some pretty strong claims, and we're going to have to wrestle with those claims because he says things like, um, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Right? That's verse 19. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all of their troubles. Those are pretty strong, universal claims, aren't they? We're going to have to work through those and the implications of those. But let's now turn back to 1 Samuel chapter 22. 22? 1 Samuel. Twenty-one, rather. Sorry. Uh, so David's on the run. He's the king on the run, right? Um, the rogue king is still in power, and David has been anointed king, but he's on the run now from Saul. And he is uh, fleeing to a place called Gath after he had went to Nob and talked to Ahimelech, not Abimelech, but Ahimelech, the priest there, and he'd gotten some supplies for his troops and some food there and some weapons, and now he's fleeing to Gath, because again, he's on the run from Saul. And verse 10, it says, And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. I said the king of Achish, sorry, the king of Gath. His name is Achish. Uh, scholars believe that because the superscription says that this is uh, Abimelech, I'm sorry, Abimelech, and here his name is clearly Akish, that he had a second name um, or a second title or whatever it, is, whatever it is, but this is the same person. So this Psalm 34, this is the background of Psalm 34, this, is, this situation here. And so let's see what happens here. So he uh, flees, he's running from Saul, he's gotten some food and supplies for his troops, his military men who are with him, and he flees to Gath and he comes to Akish, the king of Gath. Verse 11 and the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down thousands and David his ten thousands. And we'd seen that song before. In fact, people in Israel were saying those things because, and singing those things because David was proving himself to be a mighty military leader uh, in contrast to Saul. Saul was obviously jealous and David remembers that jealousy likely and Saul's murderous rage in, as, a result of his, as a result of his jealousy. And he, verse 12, takes these things to heart in the context here now with Achish. He says, verse 12, And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he's recognizing that, whoa, if people are saying this about me and Achish recognizes me now as a rival and I'm here because I want to take over, then that's not going to go well for me because Achish is going to wipe me out. Right? That would be the, that would be the natural response if if this king from an, another uh, country is uh, coming into your country with all of his military, and now he's there with you, and you've heard about the fame of this king and how powerful a military leader he is, then you're going to have to take him out. You've got to be preemptive and, and take him out. And I think David realizes that. And so he was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So verse 13, what did he do? And this is an important background because we'll, we'll see as, as David praises the Lord for his deliverance. He attributes all of his deliverance to the Lord, even though he does some things here. Uh, he kind of uh, works strategically, you might say, to escape. So he's afraid of the Akish, the king of Gath. He thinks he's going to get wiped out. And so verse 13, so he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let spittle run down his beard. Okay, so just imagine what that looks like. That's not real insanity. He is pretending to be nuts. And uh, why would he do that? Why would you do such a thing, David? I mean, you're the king of Israel. Uh, verse 14, Then Achish said to his servants, um, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you now have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? So, 
that took care of that. He doesn't want him there anymore, so he moves him along, and David leaves, and he goes to the Cade of Adullam. And so that is the background of Psalm 34. We can turn back to Psalm 34 now. That's the background we're told of Psalm 34. We're told in the superscription that's uh, the circumstances behind the writing of this psalm of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. Okay, so that's the setting. So the praise that he is giving to the Lord and the deliverance he's talking about has a specific reference. Referent. It is that situation there with the king of Gath. So verse 1. He says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Now, think about that for a moment. You've just been delivered from near death, from being killed by a foreign king who was going to take you out preemptively because he was concerned about your own military prowess. And the Lord has delivered you. And so when you, when you think about your own situations and you've asked for deliverance from the Lord and he's given it to you, what is, what is the kind of first impulse? Well, David's first impulse here is, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. It's just, that's the first impulse. This joy, this thanksgiving to the, the Lord of your salvation. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. So, I think what, again, remember when we go back to the introduction to the, our study of the Psalms, the Psalms are giving a voice to us in all of our various situations with the Lord, whether it's a lament or it's a joy, but it's also encouraging right affections towards the Lord. And the first impulse that should be in our hearts when we are in fact delivered, and David's talking about a temporal deliver, a deliverance, a deliverance that happened in time. He's not talking yet, and I think we will have to talk about future deliverance, as he gives some pretty significant and universal claims here later on in the psalm. But we do need to keep in mind, he's, he's praising the Lord for temporal deliverance. The Lord does hear the cry of his people now. He will hear it as it pertains to the future, and when we are delivered ultimately. But you can't let that, what we would call eschatological outlook where you're looking into the future for some of these things to be uh, true and, and we'll talk about I think you do need to do that for 17 and 18 yes but nevertheless David is talking about a temporal deliverance and God does deliver his people from temporal circumstances and that is the case here and his first impulse is to praise God for that deliverance I or my soul uh, makes its boast in the Lord not boast in himself, not boast in his military not, might, not boast in his wittiness to uh, pretend to be insane, but he makes his boast in the Lord. The Lord is ultimately David's deliverer. I want to focus on verse 2 just briefly on his statement about uh, the humble. Let the humble hear and be glad. Let the humble hear and be glad. Because what he's doing, remember, this is, this is not just David in his room writing a poem in his journal. Now, he is sitting somewhere and writing this out, but the audience is the whole congregation. It's not just individually David. The, I think God, what he's showing here is that godly praise isn't just a private praise before the Lord. There is private praise, right? There's private prayer, there's private praise, there's worship that we do, just me and the Lord, just him and me in my closet. Matthew chapter 6, okay? You don't need to see it. I do it for the sake of the Lord and for my relationship with Him. However, true godliness won't just stay there. It will gather together. It will desire corporate worship with, uh, together with the saints. And verse 3, O magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt His name together. This is, this is how praise overflows in the life of of the godly. You don't want to just praise the Lord by yourself, though you do enjoy it and you do seek it. You also want to enjoy it with the, uh, the body, with the congregation. And that's what he's doing here. Magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. But let's look at verse 2. Because he's exhorting the humble. Let the humble hear and be glad. And what you find in the Psalms, and I just got these, I just looked this up in the, just the Psalms. 
this, this word humble. What you find in the Psalms is that the truly godly are those who are humble. And so what he could, he could just, you could replace the word humble with believer. Let the believer hear and be glad. Let the true believer hear and be glad. Why? Because the true believer, the one who truly knows Yahweh, the, the one, true, one true and living God, is humble. Let the humble hear and be glad. Just to give you a kind of a taste of this, Psalm 1827, For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. That contrast between the humble and the proud is made all throughout the Bible, particularly here in the Psalms and in the Proverbs as well. And the Lord guides the humble. He saves the humble. Verse 9 of chapter Psalm 25, He leads the humble in what is right. He teaches the humble His way. To be a believer is in the Old Testament and in the New Testament as well. To be a believer is to be humble. That's why he can call out to the humble, let the humble hear and be glad. Um, let's see. Uh, Psalm 69, verse 32. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. Seeking the Lord, humility, being humble, they're the same thing. Um, Psalm 147, verse 6, The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. So there the contrast is wicked. You're either wicked or you're humble. Okay? Uh, Psalm 149, verse 4, For the Lord takes pleasure in His people. He adorns the humble with salvation. You see it now? So this call out to the congregation, this call out to the humble, is a call out to the true believers in Israel. Let the humble hear and be glad. Um, it's fashionable these days, it seems, to, to talk a lot about humility. Did you guys notice this? It just seems, it's a fashionable thing these days to be humble. For whatever reason, um, there's kind of a, a certain kind of way of talking about yourself and presenting yourself and more and more, and I'm not sure if it's because we're just so tired of the self-exaltation in our culture, and we just, whether you're a believer or not, you just, you're just kind of tired of it, um, that now it's, there's a, a kind of cultural, I don't want to say cherishing, because I, I still think pride is at, at the center of so much of what people do, but that there seems to be a, an attention now on humility, and that people are kind of, recognize their for their humility and people want to be humble and they talk about being humble and so on. So it's kind of fashionable, it seems to me, to talk a lot about humility these days. What is David talking about when he talks about let the humble hear and be glad? He's not talking primarily about those who are self-deprecating or soft in their speech or gentle or lowly um, and how they conduct themselves. Humility in the Old Testament is first and foremost Godward. It's first and foremost Godward. You can have someone who is generally kind, soft-spoken, self-deprecating, um, doesn't, like, doesn't like the praise, doesn't like the attention, and you'd be like, whoa, that's a humble person. Not if they're resisting God's word, they're not. Okay? It doesn't matter how lowly and self-deprecating they are. If you resist the word of God, you're not ultimately humble. Biblically speaking, a humble person, the person that David is calling to hear and be glad and rejoice in the Lord with him, is someone who is first and foremost humble before the Lord. And uh, Isaiah 66 verses 1 and 2 is, is vital for understanding um, humility this way. I'm just going to read that to you. Because I, I do think we have to explode this kind of cultural uh, pursuit of what I would say is just a false humility, a kind of virtue signaling, signaling as it were, um, trying to appear humble and even being recognized at humble when in fact Christians know that humility is first and foremost Godward. So Psalm 66 verses 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me, and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. 
But this is the one whom, to whom I will look. He was humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. This is the one to whom I will look. He was humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. So how do you know if someone is humble? How they respond to the word of God. How they think about their own sin in, in, in light of God's holiness. So he's calling out, the basically by saying, let the humble hear and be glad, he's calling out to all the true believers in Israel, those who have ears to hear, you might say. Because really, only the humble are going to, verse 2, make his boast in the Lord and exalt his name together. You can't do that if you are full of self-exaltation, right? So it is right for him to call the humble together in Israel to praise the Lord with them, to exalt his name together. Question? You said Psalm 66. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's, I, if I said Psalm 66, I apologize. It's Isaiah 66, <laughs> verses 1 and 2. That's, the, that's where I was reading from, is Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2. That was the, um, the passage I just read about the one, the one whom to the Lord will look is the one who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at his word. Thank you. Yeah, please correct me if I ever give the wrong verse. Um, so this idea of corporate praise, it's not just... And you remember during COVID, we made a, kind of a big deal about this? Um, that the church, to be the church, must gather together physically. Um, you can, the, the, the very word church means congregation. It means, it means gathering. It means physical gathering. It, it can't be, be otherwise. And we'd point to, you know, Hebrews chapter 10 is a, is a good passage. We'll get there eventually in our study in, in Hebrews. Um, there the, the author of Hebrews exhorts the congregation to not neglect the gathering together. But this is not a merely New Testament phenomenon, is it? Praise, true godly praise, must work itself out corporately. And that's what David is doing here. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. That, I think, is in the heart of every genuine believer. Let's, let's exalt his name together. We don't, we don't do this perfectly, but at the end of the day, we, we love both private and individual praise with the Lord and corporate praise with the Lord. And that's what David's calling for here. It makes sense, doesn't it? When the Lord has been so good to you, you want to share it, right? Or at least we should. So, let, so if this isn't our habit, let it become our habit by by being instructed by David's example here. All right, that's verses 1 through 3. Any questions about verses 1 through 3? All right. Verse 4. Very, these are, I mean, these should be very encouraging words to all of us, right? Here is David, who was being hunted down like an animal, saying, I sought the Lord, and He answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Let me just ask you, I want to ask you, have you had experiences like that? Have you sought the Lord? Could you tell me of a time when you sought the Lord and He answered you and delivered you out of all of your fears? You may not remember it. You may not have written it down. I don't know. But I can guarantee you, yes, this has happened to you. And I think this is one good reason we should, like David here, record when the Lord does this. We should write it down. Write it down when the Lord has delivered you from some situation, large or small. And you might be thinking, well, I can't remember the last time. Well, this is probably would then kind of expose how much we're actually praying and asking the Lord for deliverance, Right? Uh, so this would be an encouragement not only to write it down, but also to be seeking the Lord, seeking the Lord's deliverance, asking for help, make your request, as Paul in Philippians 4 would tell us. David's making an astounding claim here. He delivered me from all my fears, and we should be able to say along with David these kinds of things as believers in the one true and living God who works on our behalf, who is actively working on our behalf. Um, 
I see your guys' prayer requests come through. I, I have the privilege of praying for your prayer requests. And I, I've seen the Lord deliver so many people out of their troubles and their fears. And so we want to record those so we can go back, remember, praise the Lord for them, and be encouraged to uh, ask for help in the future. That's what David here, he's, he's reflecting on that situation with Akish and uh, what happened there and how frightening it was. He, he said he was afraid, right? This is, this is, he was tri- genuinely scared. He sought the Lord. So clearly in that situation, he sought the Lord. He prayed to him and the Lord delivered him. Now, David, in his situation, he used some of his, what interpreter, one interpreter called his wits. He, he, he used some cleverness, you might say, in that situation. So he's like, how am I going to get out of this situation? He sought the Lord. He asked the Lord, help me, Lord. And then he came up with this idea. Well, if I act crazy, like they'll let me go. And that's what happened. So seeking the Lord and asking him for help doesn't make us utterly passive, does it? We have to take some kind of action. Now, interestingly, Scripture neither commends nor condemns David's actions of being going crazy. So we just don't know really what the Lord thought of that actual activity. It doesn't condemn it, okay? Uh, and he did deliver him. But I think what we have to keep in mind is that in, this, in the context of the psalm, in the context of the background in 1 Samuel, that when we pray and ask the Lord for deliverance, that doesn't make us utterly passive. There are things that we must continue to do. And in David's case, he tried out a strategy of going crazy, and he was let go, and it worked. And he didn't exalt himself or his own wisdom and intelligence and cleverness. Who does he exalt? I sought the Lord, and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. So, as he was brought out of this situation, even though he had used some kind of means to, to uh, facilitate the process, nevertheless, he gave all the credit and glory to God. So then he encourages us. He says, those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. Uh, that word radiant there, uh, it means to shine, to beam, it, it has, it's figurative of joy in the scriptures in the Old Testament. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces shine with joy, you could say, as he's doing here, because he is so happy he was delivered that God delivered him. And uh, I just heard this story of a man down at the Master Seminary. I can't remember uh, what professor it was, but it was the professor who taught the class on prayer. You had to take a full three-unit class on prayer, full semester, and they had all kinds of things you were to do. You had to pray for an hour each day and all this stuff, and it's pretty intense, it sounded like. But the man who taught this class was, was just wonderful, what I, uh, I understand. And the guys would say, like, when he would teach the class, you're just like, you are with someone who just met with God. It's like, he was radiant, right? He didn't have some sort of halo or anything like that, you know, or some sort of special glow, some sort of supernatural glow, but you could see it in his face and his demeanor that this is a man who met with God. And it was right for him to be teaching the class on prayer. And I think I've, I've met with people like that before. They're just, you're just like, boy, this person is just, they have sought the Lord and he answered them and their faces are radiant and his, his joy just exudes uh, throughout their demeanor. And I think that's what he's talking about here. Those who look to him are radiant. They're full of joy and their, their faces shall never be uh, ashamed. Now referring back to himself, this poor man cried. Now, wait a second, David, you're the anointed king. Yeah, he is, but he also recognizes who he is before the Lord and who he is before his enemies. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. I just, this ties in well with what David said in verse 2, to let the humble hear and be glad. David himself is a humble God-fearing man, right? And he recognizes himself as someone who's in desperate need of the Lord. Despite his anoint, being anointed as king, despite his status as the up-and-coming up king, nevertheless, he is humble before the Lord. He, is in, he needs help. He's desperate. 
And the Lord loves to save the desperate out of their troubles. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Uh, David obviously had knowledge of the supernatural military that God would put around his people. Um, he, this angel of the Lord throughout the Old Testament is a, is a figure who it's hard to tell. Is this a, is this a, a, a pre-incarnate Christ who visits his people? It's, it's just it's hard to tell um, in, in many contexts. But this angel of the Lord is, is one who David sees as protecting Israel. There's a supernatural element to Israel's protection, and it's tied to the angel of the Lord. And so David has confidence in the Lord and what he has done in order to protect Israel and protect him. Um, but it's specific. It's around those who fear him. And I want you to notice over here in... Um, uh, let's see. He says, Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. Those who fear him have no lack. So this isn't uh, unconditional, right? This protection, it's for those who fear the Lord. It's for those who are humble before the Lord. It's not just for everybody. Um, I think that's all I want to say about verses 4 through 7. Any questions about verses 4 through 7? I'm just going to take it section by section and see when you have uh, questions. Questions so far? It really is astounding that David refers to himself as this poor man. It, they, he's not afraid to show his desperation, and this is the right approach to God in our times of trial and need. That we are desperate. We're always desperate, but our Circumstances will sometimes press us such that we'll realize more that we more and more that we are desperate, and that's precisely when the Lord loves to answer, so that He is beheld as the one who delivers and saves, not our own hand. Uh, verse eight, famous verse, right? You guys probably know it by heart. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is uh, good, right? Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. What is this tasting? What is, what is David referring here? Referring to here? What, what is this tasting? Well, um, given the context, given the context of deliverance, this is a, a spiritual tasting. This is not, he's not talking about, we, when we uh, did the Halloween several years ago, the kids would come to our door and we had full-size candy bars and we wrapped uh, each candy bar with a verse and this was the verse, so taste and see that the Lord is good. It was, it was my mother-in-law's idea and I thought it was clever. So I said, sure, we can do that. <laughs> oh, taste and see that the Lord is, is clever. It's clever. Um, and yeah, Amy, she told Amy, and Amy said, we should do this. I said, hey, that's a clever idea. Okay, so we did it. We did it one year. Um, and it's fine. That's cool. Uh, is that what it's talking about? Tasting a good, a good baby Ruth, and a baby Ruth's not that good. A good, a Twix, and saying, taste and see that the Lord is good. Yeah, there's a little bit of that. You could see, yeah, that is good. Um, Twix, Snickers, yeah, Reese's. Peanut butter, I get stuck in your teeth. Baby Ruth, no thank you. Uh, but you get, my, you get my point. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. We're not talking about a physical tasting here. And the way this expression is used later in Scripture, uh, it's not referring to a physical tasting. Though you can taste and see that the Lord is good when you eat food. There are a, a, a myriad of ways of tasting and seeing that the Lord is good, but the tasting is actually a spiritual tasting of the Lord's own goodness. And David experiences it here in deliverance. The, God had made, the living God had made him a promise. God had revealed himself as trustworthy, a trustworthy deliverer and savior. David could call out to him. David experiences deliverance and through that taste spiritually that the Lord himself is good. And happy is the man who takes refuge in him. David had taken refuge in, uh, in the Lord from very early on in his age, as we learn in the Psalms. We even learned from that from 
I believe in Psalm 22. And he had he was uh, sought the Lord throughout his life, and he had taken refuge in Him. And in this specific instance, he was delivered out of his a dangerous situation, and in that experience, tastes that the Lord is good. Now it's interesting because I think Peter is actually in, quite quite influenced by this Psalm when he writes his first uh, letter. So this is 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn infants. Long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. I mean, and then you think, well, that's just one verse. Well, then he actually goes on to quote Psalm 34 uh, uh, several verses out of Psalm 34 and uh, chapter 3, and we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. But um, there I believe he is just taking directly from uh, Psalm 34. If you have, in fact, tasted that the Lord is good, and there he's referring to spiritual salvation. So David here, he's been delivered by the one true and living God, and he's calling people out. He's encouraging people to taste and see. Cry out to him. Ask him for deliverance, and, and you'll see. And then Peter here is taking that and saying, Put away these sins if, in fact, you have tasted that the Lord is good. In other words, if you've entered into a saving relationship with Him. In both cases, it's, it's salvation, it's deliverance, where you're tasting that the Lord is, in fact, good. So he's encouraging his listeners to find out by experience that the Lord is good. Specifically, I believe, in the context by crying out to the Lord for deliverance and finding out how good He is. Verse 9, O fear the Lord, you His saints, for those who fear Him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Now how could you say such a thing, uh, David? Well, we saw in Psalm 23 that he did not want because the Lord is his shepherd. And we said there that it's not because he has everything he wants, but he has everything he needs. If it is good for you, you will not lack it. But I also think we have to read Psalms, and this Psalm in particular, with a view to eschatological fulfillment. And that's just a big word, uh, uh, basically saying that we have to read it with a view of having it fulfilled in the future. Okay, this is what I mean. Look over at um, verse 17. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. The Lord, verse 22, the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. So you have in this psalm, David is rejoicing over a deliverance that he experienced in real time. Okay? But then he's also making statements about being delivered in such a way that pushes us to see this fulfilled ultimately, I would say, now that we have the New Testament, in resurrection, in a new heavens and a new earth. Where the things are true, the Lord, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Now, the reason why we know that can't be absolute in, in uh, a temporal sense is because you must, we must all face what affliction? Which, what is the affliction that we must all face that we aren't ultimately delivered from? Death, that's right. But in Christ... That final affliction, you could say, is actually what leads into us being delivered from all of our afflictions, right? So I think that's why you have to, that's why it's so important for us to have a sound biblical theology so that you're reading these texts in their, their right context, but also bringing them into the, the future so that you can see where they are in fact completely fulfilled. Like this one here. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. A similar text uh, is, and you just is when you read the 
the New Testament, just remember that the New Testament authors are just saturated in the Old Testament. So you just, you read things, and they may not be quoting, but you're like, boy, but they're sure, sure alluding to it. Um, this is Acts chapter 14, verses, verse 21. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So Paul is recognizing that the, the saints, the believers, are going to experience tribulation. In fact, that's the, that's the way into the kingdom. So he is recognizing that that is a, a way into the kingdom, and David here is saying that many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Yes, he delivers them. He does deliver uh, um, his saints from some of their troubles here in this life, and David is testimony to that. And so you should pray for that. I've prayed for that many, many times, and I could give you many, many times where the Lord has delivered me out of my troubles, just like David. But he won't deliver us out of all of our troubles in this life, but ultimately he will. There's coming a day when we will be in the kingdom and you'll be like, the Lord has delivered me from all of my troubles. You will say that someday. And so we do need to, to, to read this within the whole Bible uh, context. Um, Any questions about that before we get into this wisdom section? It's eschatological fulfillment, you could say. Yeah, Albert. Uh, so verse 9 and 10, are those also eschatologically fulfilled? I would say yes. <laughs> um, yeah, I think it's hard to, to tell. Um, <sighs> Reading, so I mentioned Psalm 23, and in Psalm 23, um, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, right? And he's talking about right then and there. Um, does he have everything he absolutely wants? No. Does he have everything that he needs? Yes. Um, so there is a sense in which, so let's see, uh, those who fear him have no lack. You can say that in Christ, in, even in this life, when there is lack, you have no lack. So you are still looking to a, a, a future fulfillment, but even at this present moment, if you have Christ, you have no lack um, because you have everything that you ultimately need. So um, I do think it's, it's, in some cases, it's challenging to know exactly where the, the overlap is, if, if we could use that word. Um, so... I think, how did I put it here? Um, if it is good for you, you will not lack it. And again, this, has, this is different for all of us because of all of our different circumstances in terms of particulars. But you can say that if you have Jesus Christ, you have everything that you need. Because ultimately, if you, if you, think, of, if you think of eternal life starting now or starting when you came to Christ, then you actually... We, and, and, and think of actually entering into the kingdom in some sense when you believed in Christ. So there is a, an, an already not yet reality that we live in. Okay? If you have been born again, you are presently part of the new creation that's coming. You actually have that future new creation living inside of you. Can you believe that? You're, you are new creation. That's what, that's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21. You are new creation. You are a new creation, new creation. And so that future new creation, it's living inside of you. Um, you have entered the kingdom. You've been actually transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son when you were saved. But Paul said in Acts 14, 22, that we must enter the kingdom of God through many tribulations. So you are, you've entered the kingdom of God and you haven't entered the kingdom of God. You've stepped into the kingdom of God and yet you haven't come into the kingdom of God in its fullness. So I think understanding our lives as beginning, our eternal life beginnings from the moment we were saved and viewing 
uh, all of eternity starting now, you are a citizen of the kingdom. You have access to uh, your inheritance. You, uh, it's, it's, it's coming. It's uh, imminent and so on. So that you can say that, in a sense, we don't lack any good thing. We may feel like we lack some good things now, but ultimately we don't. And we can say that if we have Christ, we don't lack any good thing. So um, I think we want to be careful to read these in a way that you are recognizing that future fulfillment. You are recognizing that there's an already not yet to what we experience now. And at the same time, recognizing that even in this life, the Lord provides us with with what we need. And if it is good for us, we will not lack it. So, yeah, great question. Um, verses 11 through 14. These are quoted verbatim out of first, or in 1 Peter chapter 3. Verbatim, word for word. And this is what uh, some will say uh, is wisdom writing. And the reason they say that is because he's giving you very practical instruction about what we would call the good life or how to, to, to live life well in this world. Come, o, in the way he's instructing people, so he says, Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord, so come and sit at my feet. I'm going to teach you how to fear the Lord. Is there anyone here who desires life and loves many good days and that he may see good? So let me ask you. Do you desire life? and love many days. You want to live a long time? Does, it, does anybody want to die tomorrow? I, I, don't, I don't think so, right? And, and, and David and Peter recognize this. Um, what man is there who desires life and loves many good days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good and seek peace and pursue it. And Peter quotes this verbatim in his first epistle, which is why I'm saying he was strongly influenced by Psalm 34. He's quoting it twice in chapter 3, starting in verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for uh, this you are called that you may obtain a blessing for whoever desires to love life and see good days. Let him keep his tongue from evil and let his keep lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So, again, I, yes, is there an eschatological fulfillment here where you will ultimately see many good days if you keep your tongue from evil? Yes, you'll see infinite amount of days, right, as you, as you walk in godliness. But there is also practical wisdom for life now that if you want to see many good days and see good and basically enjoy life now, here are the, here's the instructions. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. It's not a promise, an absolute promise, as though if you walk in wisdom, you'll live till a ripe age of 85 and then die peacefully in your sleep. That's, that's not what he's saying. But generally speaking, a godly life lived here on earth will have some amount of preservation to life here on earth. And you will experience uh, many days and see good, ultimately eschatologically, but not only that way. So very practical bit of wisdom instruction here in the middle of this uh, psalm. Well, we'll come back for verses uh, uh, 15 through 22. Any last questions before we go? Any last questions about Psalm 34? Anything I said or didn't say? Abilash? So I was going to talk about, um, let's see here, verse 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. I'll talk about that next week. One thing I will say is this expression has reference primarily to the person who is crushed in spirit and brokenhearted, um, who's in covenant relationship with God and who is uh, crushed and brokenhearted over their own sin, but then also crushed and brokenhearted over their own circumstances, depending on what they are. Um, 
But this is not just everyone in the, in the world. Remember, this is in the context of a covenant community where people are in covenant relationship with God. And so it's not as though people just because they are um, in bad straits and just devastated personally that the, that the Lord is just near them by virtue of their being um, in a sad and sorry state. He's talking about those who are broken heart and crushed in spirit who are in covenant relationship with him. And we have to keep that in mind. So we'll expand on that uh, next week. But I do believe, yes, that the poor in spirit, Jesus' expression, poor in spirit, relates to this kind of thing. Crushed in spirit, broken hearted. Um, not just over hard circumstances, but as David expresses in Psalm 51, broken hearted and crushed in spirit over sin. So that's a good question. That's kind of a preview for next week. Any other questions? Well, okay. If you don't have any more questions, you can always ask me after class uh, anytime. Just a reminder to you, you can always ask me after class if you have any questions. Let me pray for you, and it will be time to uh, go and have fellowship before main service. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning and for Psalm 34. What a wonderful psalm it is. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. I pray that all of us in here have tasted and seen that the Lord is good and that we might be able to taste and see more and that you would uh, encourage us all to pray to you for deliverance um, and when we uh, receive deliverance from your hand to give you the praise and glory that you are due, not give any account to our own wisdom or uh, cleverness, but all to your uh, guidance and your goodness. Uh, Lord, I pray for each person in here that uh, we would not be uh, passive as we pray for deliverance, but be active. Um, but then when we are delivered, give you all the glory. And we thank you for this psalm. And I pray uh, each of us would uh, give where you worship today corporately. That's a fragrant aroma. And we would uh, say to one another, come, let's exalt his name together. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, one thing I did not say, check out Psalms. Volume 2 by Shane and Shane. They've got Psalm 34. You got to listen to it. Good stuff.